before we jump in. Father, we just confess that you're good. Lord, thank you for waking us up with your new mercies this morning. Thank you for the ways in which you are continuing to draw us closer and closer to you. Lord Christ, we want to sit under your authority this morning. Holy Spirit, as we get into the book of Galatians chapter 3, would you quicken our hearts? Bring to remembrance the purity of the gospel. Bring to remembrance our identities in you. Bring to remembrance the fact that you love us, that you accept us, that you called us according to your purpose, not by the things that we do on your behalf, but rather what you've already done on ours. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, 500 years ago, thereabout, uh, there was a German monk, and he was in his study. The marvelous light of God broke in, changed his life, and changed the course of Western history forever. His name was Martin Luther. Now, 12 years prior to this conversion experience, he was a rising law student. He was likely to follow in his father's footsteps. And he had this abrupt change of heart when, while walking, uh, a pretty bad thunderstorm whipped up. And he was so terrified that he involuntarily vowed to become a monk if he survived. That's not my first go-to when I'm really scared, but in any event, so begins his monastic life. Now, his conversion and his breakthrough centered around a particular phrase from Romans 1.17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This phrase had become the focal point in his struggle with the Lord. You see, he had long tried to blamelessly keep God's law in order to become righteous. He knew that this was what God demanded of him and all people based on his plain reading of the scripture, yet time and again he failed. The phrase, the righteousness of God, like many biblical terms, had been reinterpreted by some scholastic theologians of the high and late Middle Ages. And I know this is a little geeky, but just hang with me here. They had reinterpreted certain phrases in the Bible to support a theology of works and the law. What was being taught was that the righteousness of God was God's active, personal righteousness or justice by which he punishes the unrighteous sinner. So Luther was simply leaning into the teaching of the time. So whenever he came across the phrase, the righteousness of God in scripture, it terrified him. It struck my conscience like lightning. It was like there was a thunderbolt in my heart, he says because he knew rightly that he was an unrighteous sinner who fell far short of God's perfect demands. Even worse, Romans 1.17 filled him with hate. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Is it not enough that God crushes us miserable sinners with his law, that he has to threaten us with punishment through the gospel too? 
you can see how he was thinking about the righteousness of God here. Now, Luther didn't stay in that spot. He became the firebrand of the Reformation. But this wasn't the first time that the church needed reforming or to hear the gospel clearly again. 1,450 years before Martin nailed his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, the church in Galatia too had crossed over the line of right belief. They had simply forgotten the gospel. So this morning, we're going to look at that church. So please open your Bibles. If you've got your blue ones there, it's page 973. Galatians chapter 3, we're starting in verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has put a spell upon you? You fools, what in the world is going on? Okay, Paul, we are sensing some frustration. We're picking up what you're putting down. This is not Jesus meek and mild. He's coming out swinging. He calls them fools. He doesn't address them as brethren or brothers and sisters. He goes to a more formal uh, approach here. He calls them Galatians. He's trying to distance them in a formal manner to wake them up. He's trying to sober them up, if you will. You foolish group of people, I can hardly recognize you now. What's happened? Has someone put a spell upon you? Now, Paul doesn't think that an actual sorcerer or witch has infiltrated the Galatian church. He's simply using this really harsh language to wake them up. He's trying to startle them out of their spiritual folly because before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. What he means here is that they had received the preaching of the true gospel with crystal clarity. They knew that they knew that they knew that they knew that the only way to have right standing with God was by what Christ had done for them. So the fact that they are not leaning into that any longer is why Paul is so dumbfounded. They knew the gospel the last time that he checked, but now they've clearly forgotten. Verse 2, he begins to appeal to their experience. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? You guys lived this. Remember that day. Remember the day that you became a Christian and you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? I want you guys to consider the same question. Remember this day. For the Galatians, was it that they got up, they did all their ceremonial washings, they put on the right garment to say the Shema, they did it all in the right order, then uh, they stopped by the UPS store on the way home to mail in a temple offering at just the right time, 
And that then, once they had done all those things, that's when they received regeneration. That's when they received the Holy Spirit. Was that how it was for you? Did you get up, read the whole book of Leviticus real quick before work? Have kind of a perfect day, no sins. Then, because you did all those great things, then God washed you with regeneration and said, now that you've been a good Christian boy or good Christian girl, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. No. No. It was simply a matter of faith. They believed the clearly preached gospel, and that was it. He goes on, verse 3. Are you so foolish? After beginning by the means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? In verse 1, he asks if they've been put under a spell. Now he's rhetorically throwing shade at them. He's shaming them. Are y'all really going to go with this argument? Is this what you're going to stick with? Having begun by the Spirit, you experienced it. Now, are you going to add the law back onto that? Can the initial experience of life in the Spirit be brought to maturity by the flesh, by working really hard to please God? Another way of asking that question is, could the motive of the law be a fitting climax for the spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit? The answer is evident and it's obvious. That dog will not hunt. It's not possible. There's no way that's what God's doing. There's no way that God gives his free gift and then adds all these other things on top of it. Now, a bit of caution for us. 21st century America, we don't understand uh, the Jewish law very well. We haven't received much teaching on it and we haven't had to live into it at all in our experience. So maybe it doesn't apply to us, is the temptation, I think, that we might be at at this juncture in the scripture. But I think that we have patterns of behavior that at times we can slip into that are eerily similar to what the Galatians were tempted to do. Familiar practices of religious behavior that make us feel like we're doing really well. Moral patterns that really are the right things to do, but they don't give us any spiritual brownie points. Praiseworthy self-effort. Bible app badges for 30, 60, 200 days in a row. Be honest. When you get the notification that your friend liked that you just finished that Bible plan, something feels good about that, right? We like, as humans, to appear religious. We like to do things that show that we're religious. The Galatians are simply doing the same things. They'd picked up practices, patterns, they'd put their hands to the plow, doing things that made themselves feel good, look good, gave them a semblance of control, satisfied this narrative that had crept in. Well, it's just what we've always done. Listen, brother, I'm so glad you're part of the church now. I'm, this is cool. What a great day. It's your spiritual birthday. Okay, now that you're in the club, 
got a few things that you should probably do. So you definitely want to get a pair of pants that looks like this. Uh, you definitely want to start doing this, 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 and this. Uh, 97.7 and 91.3 are the only appropriate radio, radio stations for you to listen to. And just suggestion here, forceful suggestion, you definitely can't do this, this, and that. Now that you're a Christian. Okay. I know y'all have never done that. But we as society, we fall prey to this. Uh, when I had the privilege of doing missions in Indonesia about 10 years ago, there was a, a young man that I had the opportunity to uh, disciple for a couple months, and his name was Indra. He was a professional skateboarder, uh, lived a very rock and roll kind of lifestyle. And I don't have time to tell you his conversion experience, but it's a lot like Paul's. So he wasn't quite knocked off of a horse and blinded, but there was this three-day thing. And Anyway, he's a Christian now, okay? So he thinks to himself, okay, if this Christian God that has just taken over my mind, soul, and body is real, which I believe is true, because I can't discount this experience and what my heart is doing, um, I need to go find some experts. So he remembers that there's this Christian church somewhere in the heart of Bali, and it's a local Indonesian non-denominational church that has been planted from Jakarta. Well, he shows up, he meets with a couple of pastors and their wives, tells his story, and they are very glad to hear that the Spirit is moving. Um, they're very glad that Indra has become a follower of Christ. They're not so glad about all of his tattoos that are everywhere. So what they tell him is like, Indra, man, glad you're part of this whole thing. Um, but your tattoos, those aren't going to work, okay? So you need to wear long sleeve shirts all the time. Also, skateboarding is not a really, it's not like a Christian career. It's not a career at all anyway. <laughs> Even though you make way more money than we do, but and you're on billboards everywhere. Um, yeah, so if you could just fix all that, that'd be great. Then God will love you. It's not quite what they said. Right, but that's what he heard. That's what he received. As a new Christian for two weeks, having begun by this Holy Spirit's miraculous work, now he was under the impression that he had to do all these things for God to continue to be pleased with him. Not true. Not true. Verse 4. Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain. So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Paul doubles down here. It's the same question from verse 2 with a slight nuance. He adds the Father. Did the Father of all mercies give you his Holy Spirit and do all those miracles in your town because you guys were being really good that day? No. It's not because you followed the law perfectly. It's not because you did X, Y, and Z. It's because you believed the gospel. 
you believed the gospel. Verse 6. Now Paul adds to his appeal to get them out of their folly. He appears, or sorry, he calls to mind the patriarch Abraham. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What he's doing is he's appealing to what the Judaizers have probably come in to do. Look, if y'all want to go back to the beginning, if you want to go to the source, we can do that. Abraham's righteousness was simply a matter of faith. Didn't depend on his circumcision or adherence to the law. It was simply a matter of faith. He heard from God and believed God credited it to him as righteousness. So it is with us. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Verse 10. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. During one of our foundations classes this last uh, semester, when talking about God's righteous standard... I pose the question to the group, what if I told you that if you could do 1,000 push-ups right now, perfect form, no stopping, that that's the way to get to heaven? Well, it's a fair amount of push-ups. It's a fair bit. Um, Tucker and Sawyer, real quickly, they kind of started doing the math and like, well, I mean, maybe with the right amount of preparation and the right amount of food, like we could protein load, and like it's maybe it's a possibility, right? I'm certain, Tucker, that you could do it, actually. You could figure it out. The problem, though, is that the analogy breaks down. A thousand push ups in a row is actually humanly possible. The world record was done in 1980. A guy named Yoshida, or sorry, Minoru Yoshida, did 10,507 push-ups in a row. This is incredible. Yeah. That's a lot of push-ups, guys. Okay? So, one, my analogy stinks at this point. And this one will, too. When it comes to the righteousness of God and the requirement of God... It would be as if we were required to, right now, do 10 million push-ups in a row, perfect form. It's impossible. There's no amount of training. There's no amount of muscles. There's no amount of Rouse genes that can allow you to do 10 million push-ups in a row. Paul's saying the same thing to the Galatians. If you guys want to try and earn your way into God's good graces, by human effort, you have to literally follow every jot and tittle of the law, and you have to do that for the rest of your days, every minute, every second of every day. And you need to have been doing that every minute, every second of every one of your previous days. If you want to submit to this standard, you will fail. 
it's impossible. He goes on. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The central question in the book of Galatians is doctrinal. Are we made right with God by the careful observance of a certain series of duties or ceremonial formulas, or... Are we made right with God by solely trusting in who Christ is and what he's done for us? You became a follower of Christ. You became a child of God by Christ's mercy. The way for you to continue in that identity, for you to continue in him loving you, is not by doing a bunch of things to please him. He is already pleased with you because of Christ. And I realize this brings up the whole, you know, faith versus works uh, thing. We've got some resources. If, if that's confusing, which it probably is, uh, come talk to us. We've got some sermons on the website. But for this purpose, for what Paul is preaching through and teaching these Galatians, he's saying, you guys have missed it. You've completely missed it. You've gone out of bounds You're not believing correctly. You're believing heresy. Martin Luther on verse 13 in his commentary about the Galatians says this, I cannot get over the blindness of the Pope's theologians to imagine that the mighty forces of sin, death, and the curse can be vanquished by the righteousness of man's paltry works, by fasting, by pilgrimages, by masses, by vows, and other such gugaws. I don't know what a gugaw is. <laughs> but working to please God is a gugaw. Right? You don't know what it is because it's not a thing. You cannot please God by your human effort. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. God is pleased with you because of what he did. That's it. This is the gospel. If it required things from us, it would not be called good news. It's grace alone, through faith alone, in works alone. What? Y'all better fire me. That is not right. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So like Martin Luther, like Paul, stand firm, therefore. 
Stand firm, therefore, against the heretical doctrine that you have to earn your way into God's good graces. We don't ask alcoholics to get sober before they come to their first meeting. You don't have to get cleaned up before you come down the aisle. You don't have to have it all figured out before you surrender. You don't have to know all the books of the Bible before you let the Bible speak to you. Ephesians 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Amen? Stand firm, therefore, against the belief that you can please God by being a good Christian girl or good Christian boy. It's not the fact that you sit down, you get your Bible app open. By the way, Bible app is fantastic. So I realize I'm being kind of funny about it, but uh, it, it's not that you open your Bible, you've got your great coffee. It's not that you do that every day for a year in a row. That's not why God loves you. Quiet times are great, and I believe they are necessary for the Christian life, but the outward working of them is not the point. The point is to be with God. The point is to enjoy the presence of God. How do we do that? Well, it's opening the scripture, it's prayer, it's meditating, it's being with community. There's all these really beautiful, good things that help us enjoy the presence of God because that's what we're made for. But the outward things aren't the things, if you will. Uh, maybe, maybe you didn't grow up in a culture like this. Maybe you're new to the faith. Um, a few of us had the opportunity to attend Texas A&M Sure, it's great. Um, this thing, this real interesting thing happened and I think still is happening there. Um, it's Christian Disneyland and people would straight up call you out if you were reading anything besides the Bible before 8 a.m. at the MSC. Like, people would literally like come up to you. Hi, brother. I see you've got your coffee out. I see you've got your Western Lit book out. Just want you to know that's not going to stand the test of time, but God's word will. <laughs> Here, why don't you borrow one of my 17 Bibles that I have in my backpack? All right, God bless you. Make sure to tell somebody about Christ today before nine. See you at Breakaway tonight. That's good. Thank you for the exhortation. It came from a really good place, right? It was... It was a college student that was zealous for the Lord, that loved his word, that was loving his brother, going directly to him, right? Not talking behind his back, no gossip, just, hey, dude, you, like, stop studying, read Jesus, because that's going to stand the test of time. But over time, these outward things, these forms, these religious movements... Uh, they became law. And there was this thing that happened where we started to trust in the outward things. And we'd, we'd think to ourselves, man, God must be really proud of me today because I read the whole book of Leviticus or I went to 14 Bible studies today and I went to class. Right? And I realize it's funny, but, but I lived it and it happens. And I don't know what those things are for you, but they creep in. They creep in somehow, some way, 
and we mistake the conduit for the water. God doesn't love you. He doesn't accept you because of the streak you have on your Bible app. He loves you. He saved you because of grace. That's where your approval comes from. Romans 11. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Acts 15. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Stand firm, therefore, against the temptation to draw away from God when you've committed a big one. You ever not come to church on Sunday because of Saturday? Come on. Just admit it. Right? Like, we've got, we've got this certain set of sins that are the big ones. And uh, if, if we mess up, if we fall, we engage in one of those big sins, then there's this thing that happens, I'll just speak for myself, where it's like, man, I really don't deserve to read the scripture. I don't deserve to pray. I don't deserve to be in God's house with his people. True. I don't deserve any of those things. But I don't deserve those things when I've had the best day. Right? And so for me to tell God that what he's done on my behalf isn't good enough because I've committed a big one, it's heretical, guys. Hebrews 4, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. One of the things I love about our tradition is that every single week we are forced to reckon with the gospel. In a few minutes, we're going to come to the table. We're going to approach the throne of grace with confidence. We're going to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, whether or not yesterday was just terrible or you spent the whole day in prayer. Either way, you're in need of his mercy and his grace. And so when we come forward, what we're reenacting is the gospel. That Christ lived, that he died, he was buried, and he rose again for us. Stand firm, therefore, against anything that tells you that Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection isn't enough. Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son. In the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering... And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You're loved, you're accepted, you're free by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. Let's pray.
Lord Christ, we, um, we marvel at your love for us. That while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, you love us, you have pursued us. You've quickened our hearts, you have removed our hearts of stone and replaced them. You've given us the gift of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Lord, all those things happen because of what you did for us, not because of the things that we had done or have done or will do for you. Lord, quicken our hearts. Remind us, Lord, when these other narratives come in that say what you've done is simply not enough, that we've got to add X, Y, or Z. Lord, would you remove those from our minds and our hearts. And Lord, we just want to be a gospel people. We want to be a group of people that knows that we know that we know that we know that the only way to be made right is by what you've done on our behalf. Lord, let that be our cry here at Grace. We love you because you first loved us. Keep us in your love. In Christ's name, amen.